You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Joker spy afflicts Max, third eye not so blind, Mockingjay process injection as proof of concept, Switzerland expects Russia to increase cyber espionage as agent networks are disrupted, the fracturing of Conti and the rise of its successors, Washington Post's Tim Starks explains the security of undersea cables, our guest is Brian Johnson of Armor Blocks to discuss social security administration impersonation scams. And the UserSec Collective says it's recruiting hacktivists for the Russian cause. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Wednesday, June 23rd, 2023. A new Mac malware called Joker Spy was used in an attack on a prominent Japanese cryptocurrency exchange, according to researchers at Elastic. The malware was partially analyzed by Bitdefender earlier this month. Ars Technica notes that there appear to be versions of the malware that target Windows and Linux machines as well. Elastic states, While we are still investigating and continuing to gather information, we strongly believe that the initial access for this malware was a malicious or backdoored plug-in or third-party dependency that provided the threat actor access. This aligns with the connection that was made by the researchers at Bitdefender, who correlated the hard-coded domain found in a version of the sh.pi backdoor to a tweet about an infected macOS QR code reader, which was found to have a malicious dependency. Researchers at Fortinet have observed a new info-stealer they're calling Third Eye. The malware isn't sophisticated, although its developers are actively making improvements. Fortinet says, The Third Eye info-stealer has relatively simple functionality. It harvests various system information from compromised machines, such as BIOS and hardware data. It also enumerates files and folders, running processes and network information. Once the malware is executed, it gathers all this data and sends it to its command and control server. And unlike most other malware, it does nothing else. 
so Third Eye stays focused. Researchers at Security Joe's outline a process injection technique they've dubbed Mocking J. The researchers were able to use a vulnerable DLL in Visual Studio 2022 community that has a default read-write-execute section on disk. They write, In this case, we were able to inject our own code into the memory space of the ssh.exe process without being detected by the EDR. The uniqueness of this technique lies in the fact that there is no need to allocate memory, set permissions, or create a new thread within the target process to initiate the execution of our injected code. This differentiation sets the strategy apart from other existing techniques and makes it challenging for endpoint detection and response systems to detect this method. It's not out in the wild, but security teams should take note. Switzerland's Federal Intelligence Service warns that Russia can be expected to turn to cyber espionage as its human intelligence networks in Europe and North America are increasingly rolled up and as the officers working under diplomatic cover who run those networks are declared persona non grata. In their statement, they say, While the Russian intelligence services which operate abroad continue to pose the main threat in terms of espionage, Their capabilities were undermined in many European states and in North America in 2018, response to the attempted murder of Sergei Skripal, and in 2022, response to the war against Ukraine, in some cases significantly. Large numbers of Russian intelligence officers working under diplomatic cover were expelled. So, cyber espionage can serve as a compensatory measure when traditional espionage operators are expelled or otherwise denied access. The Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime released a report detailing the Conti cybercrime group's fall from its prominent perch in the underworld following the gang's declaration of support for Russia in the Ukraine-Russia war, stating, Two days after Conti pledged their support for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, things began to unravel for the group. A Twitter profile with the handle at ContiLeaks started leaking the ransomware group's internal communication, Although there are conflicting reports on who was behind the leak, perhaps a Ukrainian security researcher or an affiliate against the war, the over 100,000 leaked files were dubbed the Panama Papers of Ransomware. Over the coming months, Conti's methodical and business-like approach disintegrated, although attacks continued, including on the networks of the Costa Rican state. On May 19, 2023, it was reported that Conti's websites were no longer working, The story doesn't seem to end there, however. IBM's Security X-Force reported on June 27th that their tracking of the cryptors who worked with Conti revealed that the group remains active, at least in fragmentary or rump forms. IBM states, One year on, ITG23, Conti, has experienced many organizational changes, splintering into factions and forging new relationships. Despite these events, ITG23 cryptors remain fundamental to tracking post-ITG23 factions and their activity, so much so that we believe identifying and tracking the cryptors is just as important, if not even more so, than tracking the malware itself. Our research indicates that while ITG23 may have fractured apart after shutting down Conti, many of its various members continue to be very active, still communicating amongst themselves and using shared infrastructure. Conti has fractured into what they call factions, which X-Force calls out as Royal, Quantum, Xeon, Black Basta, and Silent Ransom. Conti has provided a case study in cyber privateering, 
a financially motivated criminal gang tolerated and encouraged to make its money attacking the enemies of the state. No formal letter of mark and reprisal required, just a wink and a nod from the FSB. And finally, we turn from cyber privateers to cyber auxiliaries. The group calling itself UserSec has reported on its Telegram page that the group has formed a new group of pro-Russian hacktivists. Take what follows with the customary grain of salt, calling it with a sad failure of imagination the UserSec collective they boast to have attracted groups from Russia, India, Egypt, and other countries supporting the Russian cause. They also claim to have already carried out a mass cyber attack against many Internet service providers, the details of which remain unreleased. A full list of the groups in the collective was posted this morning. That list is implausibly large. It includes 15 hacktivist groups and one media organization, someone called the Quantum Stellar Initiative, which sounds like a tabloid from the Marvel Universe. The UserSec Collective has so far claimed an attack against a French government visa site. Again, view the communiques with appropriate skepticism. The UserSec Collective is as likely to represent grassroots hacktivism as Anonymous Sudan is to be either anonymous or Sudanese. Off to the salt mines. Coming up after the break, The Washington Post's Tim Starks explains the security of undersea cables. Our guest is Brian Johnson of Armor Blocks to discuss Social Security Administration impersonation scams. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. (laughs) 
Security firm ArmorBlocks recently published research tracking a campaign targeting a large educational institution with emails pretending to be from the Social Security Administration. Brian Johnson is chief security officer at ArmorBlocks. What we saw from our customer base is we have an educational customer um, where we saw about 160,000 attempts uh, to pretend to be the Social Security Administration, which is somebody, everybody in the in the U.S. has access with and communications with. Um, and even if you're external to the states coming in, especially in the education space, um, everybody deals with this, uh, this administration. So it was an interesting thing to see that somebody was, you know, pretending to be them and to, you know, attack the student body at this educational space. Well, I, I'd like to dig into the two elements of this. I mean, it, it sounds like there's a social engineering side, but then also a technical side. Is it correct that on the tech side, they were able to to bypass some of the normal native email security? Yes. You know, this really, you know, bypassed like what we'd consider the standard um, legacy, you know, detection methodologies. Just didn't have, you know, a, a link that could be easily identified as, you know, something that's done bad. And you know, these were very um, scripted, pointed attacks, you know, at these, you know, individuals. Um, it had people's names. It looked very official. And what they were really trying to get is that interaction you know, with the email so they could, you know, show that there was, you know, some issue, some, you know, speed of action you needed to take to not have something bad happen, you know, and so, you know, hurry and, you know, call us and we'll fix whatever is broken, right? So, mm. you know, that need that they really pushed on the human element of it, you know, was what they were trying to get through. They bypassed everything that we would consider, you know, coming from a known bad host. Like I said before, knowing, you know, a link, in, in the system, pretending um, to be coming from themselves. They use none of those type tactics. They use good spoofing and the good human engineering to have this attack move forward. Is it fair to say that they were fairly sophisticated in their methods here? Or did it, I mean, would it pass uh, a quick look to, to make it seem like it came from the Social Security Administration? This email looked extremely legit. You know, even when we first started looking at it and it, it came up and, you know, our detectionist team sent it to me and we were, you know, discussing it. We were all really surprised about how well this uh, email looked from the watermarking they put in the system to how they had the official, you know, Social Security Administration seal, you know, address, phone numbers. I mean, this looked, you know, extremely legit. And so did you find that there were many people who ended up falling for it? There were a good number, a number of people who ended up fall, falling for it. Um, with this attack, you know, this phishing type tactic, they were, the dedication of this attack was to call the phone number. We'll never know how many people actually ended up calling the phone number. We do know the number of people who called and said, hey, I did call it. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, for this educational space, we were able to stop the email, stop the attack, um, and didn't move forward. Unfortunately, the school is the only space being attacked. So um, I'm sure this was widespread, not just aimed at just this one educational facility, but probably many. And so what are your recommendations here in order for folks to better protect themselves against this sort of thing? So I think the thing people really need to understand is the adversaries are increasing their attacks, their complication of the attacks. The way we used to just look at an email and kind of know inherently that it was was bad isn't something we can do anymore. You know, we need to use the latest techniques, our natural language, language ability to help those things um, and to find those adversaries. It's really what you need now. Um, 
the bad guys aren't using links anymore. Um, they're not using kind of those traditional, what we consider in the industry, traditional views and attack methodologies. They're using very pinpointed phishing and interactions to get you to call, to get you to sign up for something, um, to get you to interact in, in ways that we don't consider normal yet. Yeah, it's interesting the, the degree to which these things are blended now. You know, it, it's not just a technical solution that, that's going to get you here. It's a, there's that human element as well. Right. And this human element, you know, is now is being technically generated. You know, we've really, you know, come to a new, a, a new time. And there's been lots of talk of, you know, how, you know, machine learning and AI is, you know, changing the space. This is one of those areas that we've seen change, you know, over the last five years. You know, Armor Blocks, we've been using those, you know, newer detection and machine learning AI-based methodologies for detection to find those adversaries because, you know, with anything that's good, somebody will find a bad way to use it, um, this being no different. So we're really moving into that next phase of what those attacks are going to look like. How does an attack like this compare to some of the other things that you all see? You know, at 160,000 end users, where does that sit on the spectrum of things? No, for us, you know, it, it, it is a subset of, you know, data that we see. We see these attacks, you know, every day, every week. We see them much like what we consider in marketing campaigns as they roll them out. We see, we're starting to see trends of really smaller um, businesses, uh, smaller financial companies, uh, medical device bases, really becoming, you know, the precursor to these attacks. That's where we we're selling kind of the beachhead from. Once they've found that beachhead and found an attack that works. And you see these larger attacks like we saw with this one for the Social Security Administration where they went and attacked a very large you know, school. The 160,000 mailboxes is very loud. Um, it's not five or six in a, in a space. Um, so they had to have 40-some re-education that this attack was going to work or had worked somewhere else. That's Brian Johnson from Armor Blocks. And joining me once again is Tim Starks. He is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, it's always great to welcome you back. Always, always. So interesting uh, article and analysis you posted today. This is a fun one. And the, the, it's titled Sharks, Earthquakes, and Cyber Attacks, The Threats to Undersea Cables. What, uh, what prompted you to take on this topic, Tim? I think it was just an excuse to write that headline. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, um... Sometimes, what, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Is that the yes. phrase? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little bit of a slow week on the cyber front. And Congress is not around, and that always makes things go slower because everybody's on vacation. And mm. and I I was I, I was looking for things to write about, and I saw that recorded future report in my email inbox, and was like, I don't. I've never written about this before. Uh, I've never. I've never. I, I remember that there was a there was a story that I edited last year about a, a cyber attack that the Homeland Security Investigations Unit of DHS had said they foiled against a cy- underwater cyber, underwater cable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I thought, what? What? Who? What? Why? How? <laughs> what, who's attacking that? What would they do with it? And so I thought it, was, I thought it was interesting at the time, and I saw that report. I'm like, you know what? This is, this is interesting. The, the report essentially says uh, that the threats, the threats to those, uh, those cables are rising. Hmm. And, and it's something that, that has, you know, when I started digging into it a little bit, I was like, this is really fascinating. 
I yeah. want to write about this because it's 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 something that people don't think about probably very much. At right. I don't. I mean, they're underwater and yeah. <laughs> I don't see them and I don't think about them. Uh, but when you think about how vital they are, um, and you and you look back and see that there's been a lot of decent scholarship about this, that there's real threats to these things, and that could be really damaging to the to the internet. It could be surveillance surveillance issues. I was just this is really compelling. I was like, I yeah. gotta write about this. So, to what degree does the internet rely on these underwater cables to do its thing? Yeah. So, um, depend on what 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 year, what estimate you read. Minimum of ninety five percent of uh, of the intercontinental global internet traffic, minimum, the the recorded future report, ninety five percent is what I think ODNI said, uh, the yeah. Office of Director of National Intelligence said, back in twenty seventeen, the recorded future report says ninety nine percent. So it's almost all of it is is the essential answer. Yeah, and we're talking fiber optic cables here primarily is what's carrying this traffic. I believe so. Yeah, there's a there's a pretty long section in the uh, recorded future report if you click on the story. That describes the cables and and what they physically are. I a little I skipped over that a little bit in my head <laughs> uh, because I was really I was really more interested in focusing on the nature of the threat. Yeah, well, let's dig into that. But what are the threats we're talking about here? Sharks, and of really? course earthquakes, and of course earthquakes, <laughs> and of course uh, cyber attacks, which is what I was interested let's, in. To start let's with. start with sharks. What what do sharks have against underwater cables? I don't, what is it exactly? Right, I. I've, <laughs> We've got a lot of uh, hostilities towards from sea creatures lately, right? We've got the orcas yeah, attacking right. the boats. Right, <laughs> they just don't like us in, in general. Um, it's it's so so the, 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 there are a lot of threats to these undersea cables that are very incidental. They're they're natural threats, like you know, of course, also earthquakes, tsunamis, right. anything you can think of that might physically affect these things is out there. And and to be clear, the physical threats are are more common than the cyber threats. So. Hmm. I don't want to overplay this, but if you're talking about, and the, the the ODNI report had an interesting section where they ranked things by where the threat was. And if you're talking about threats to uh, interstate cables that are above ground, it's actually in, in these kind of network management companies that help operate, manage, protect these interstate cables. And, and those are the things that would be hacked. You're not going to go, you know, you're not going to go underwater and hack something down there. Right. Uh, you would hack the company that's 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 managing the system. What about for espionage? I mean, do we have cases? It seems like this would be something that uh, someone would love to pull a, a submarine up next to and tap into if they could. Yes, that is something that 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 the report does go into. That's interesting. There's a couple different ways that there might be a surveillance threat. One would be, first off, China is developing a lot of undersea undersea cables these days, Chinese companies, and so. You know, if if you if you have a, one of those cables running into your country, and it, it's Chinese managed and or, or operated, you've got to consider the fact that China might be spying on you through it. The other way it might work is um, the landing stations where you might uh, insert hacking for surveillance kind of technology. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a country I can't remember which one it is from the report. That there were rumors that were circulating in that country that that Indian intelligence was trying to get uh, an implant into one of those landing stations in one of those countries. To the degree that it was truthful or not truthful, the government was not answering the questions about it. Hmm. So, so there's reason to suspect that that might actually be a real thing. What we've also seen uh, that the report talks about is Russia seems to be very interested in mapping these undersea cables these days. So you have to wonder why they would be interested in doing that. 
Yeah, the the the, um, the internet is sort of famously resilient um, and redundant. Um, uh, do these cables go down as a matter of routine, and things get routed to other cables? They do go down sometimes, yeah. And it and what you know, sometimes it's not that damaging. Uh, you know, with with some of the more routine things that that happen, uh, maybe it'll slow down the internet traffic. We are also seeing, interestingly, um, that a lot of companies in the United States are investing in these things as well. So. Uh, I think they mentioned Meta, Facebook, Microsoft. Some of the companies you might expect are starting to develop these, these cables for themselves. So they're they're interested in 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 this business as well. And what what is the regulatory regime here? Is this one of those things where you know you get twenty miles offshore and and it's the wild west? <laughs> I, I mean, one of the things that that other r- reports talked about, not not this particular one, uh, delved into the fact that there's not much regulatory protection. For them, as far as it goes with cyber attacks, hmm. you know, the United Nations has talked about this is these are things you should do to protect them physically. The United States does uh, have a, I'm trying to remember what they call themselves. I think there's it's a Department of Justice unit, telecom team or something like that mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that has has uh, shut down some of these uh, attempts to operate cables into the United States or out of the United States. But yeah, it's it's a it's a little bit of the wild west is, is the answer. Yeah. It's in, it's an interesting article for sure, and uh, I should mention also that uh, uh, for the next day or so, the paywall is down at the Washington Post, so this is a great time to go check out and, and uh, collect and download all those articles you've been meaning to to read <laughs> that have been paywalled. Yeah, and it's, you know, one of the, just to be a little bit of a salesman, uh, mm. I completely agree with everything you're saying. Also, should be known that, that if you are a person who subscribes to the Cybersecurity 202, it is free in your inbox every day but if you want to read old stuff if you want to go back and you know see articles that we've written uh and you just do google searching and happen across something yeah you probably you probably need to pay yeah all right well tim starks is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the washington post tim thanks for joining us Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. 
N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Thank you.